10 Great Ideas for 2020. That's how we're starting the year on Taiwan Insider. That's right. We're going to be bringing you some great ideas for a greener, healthier world. And what's more, these ideas are all from Taiwan. I'm Leslie Liao. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's get started with idea number 10. Number 10. Let's start with an idea for the younger generation. Now, many people think children in Taiwan spend too much time in the classroom. That's right. But an elementary school in Yilan got some attention for their innovative way of teaching courage, team spirit, and physical fitness. That's right. Now, the children were featured in a documentary back in July of last year. And in that documentary, we could see the teachers taking the children to a classroom without borders. At Yilan's Yueming Elementary School, sailing is a required course for third to sixth graders. The school is known for inspiring a love for the ocean and its students. On May 1st last year, they even sent a group of students sailing to Japan's Ishigaki Island, which is about 250 kilometers away. The school's principal explains. At Yuemin Elementary School, the ocean is our teacher and the coast is our classroom. We're teaching children to embrace a spirit of adventure and overcome challenges as they're out in this coastal paradise. At a press conference earlier this month, the Interior Ministry presented a new documentary featuring the school called Hello Ocean, We Are in Yilan Coast. Director Ling Fang Yi says, I went to the ocean with the children. We went kayaking and searching for clams and seaweed. And once you get to know the ocean, it's not scary at all. I went to the ocean and filmed for a year and then took six months to produce it. During post-production, I felt really uneasy being away from the ocean. The documentary is now available with English subtitles. Just search for Hello Ocean, We Are in Yilan Coast. Yilan is spelled Y-I-L-A-N. All right, we have 20 seconds on the clock, and we're going to have Leslie pitch the idea to us. What do you like so much about this project? All right, so I went to school in Taiwan as well, and uh, I think there's way too much emphasis on academic success, book smarts. Even in America, there's too much emphasis on stuff like this. And on YouTube now, I just watch videos on how to cook, how to, you know, uh, how to go fishing. I think these kids already know one more skill set than I do, which is to go sailing. And I'm already almost three decades into my life. Very nice. Well, you know, I agree. My husband is a new sailor, and it's a great way to de-stress. He's been happy and healthier ever since he took up the sport. That's awesome. So it's a great sport, and uh, we recommend it for our kids as well. Number six. Theaters aren't the most welcoming places for people with disabilities, but Taiwan's National Theater and Concert Hall is trying to change that. Accessibility consultant Sandy Yi told us about one of the many things that they're doing, relaxed performances. So for relaxed performance, we encourage people that if you want to move around, you can. If you need to stand up and even leave, and you can also come back. Mm-hmm. So That's huge, yeah, right? Usually very, at the National mm-hmm. Concert Hall or the National Theater, once you leave, you have to wait to yeah. come back in, or maybe you can't come back in. Yeah, it's very much about you know teaching the audience a new way of channeling in, mm-hmm. bringing your whole body, mind in. Mm-hmm. Like really paying attention to, wait, do I need to come up and I mean, stretch 
leave my seat and stretch. Can I take a break and come back? And this is a real need yeah. for a lot of audience who have autism. Mm-hmm. One way that、um, folks soothe themselves, maybe rocking, maybe making some sound. It's amazing how much we are trained to behave in a certain way in a theater setting. You have to be quiet. You can't move. You can't get up and, and walk around, and that's so antithetical to the way human beings interact in normal life in the in every in the in the world. Okay, Andrew, you have twenty seconds to sell us this idea. All right, I think this is a fantastic idea. It's great not just for people with disabilities; it's also good for children, for the elderly, for anybody that finds、uh, theaters to not be an ex- inclusive place. Now, a lot of theaters already have what they need to do this. You just basically have to change people's minds. And actually, I think the hardest part of feasibility is really. Just training people how to do a relaxed performance and letting them know that it's okay to have people walking around or you know, to be more relaxed. To be more relaxed. And to enjoy more power. How、play. hard is that? <laughs> you guys went way past twenty seconds, but I could see your passion. That's okay because Taiwan's a very accessible place, and it just very plays into our inclusive culture and anything that makes Taiwan shine as a friendly country. I like it very, very much. And we just want it to be more accessible. That's right.、Yeah. That's right. A great idea for 2020. Number five. We're counting down ten great ideas for 2020, and we've arrived at number five. Now, single-use tableware is a huge source of trash, but one thing that Taiwan has done to reduce the problem is to ban it at shopping centers. And a village in central Taiwan has come up with an interesting biodegradable alternative. Betel nut is a chewable stimulant that's popular in Asia and some parts of Africa. The nuts grow on big palm-like trees that are a regular sight in Taiwan's mountains. Usually, the leaves of the betel nut trees would be swept up and tossed out, but one neighborhood in Nanto County has found a new use for these leaves. With its large banana and betel plantations, Nanto County has no shortage of oversized leaves. In the past, these leaves were left to decompose in the ground, but now people in one neighborhood here are cutting the leaves and turning them into plates and balls with the help of hydraulic presses. Each leaf only needs to be pressed for eight minutes to form a bowl or plate. Local Yang Zhenlian says that this disposable but eco-friendly dishware has caught the attention of an Italian company. These sustainable plates and bowls may spell a better quality of life for this rural corner of Taiwan. All right, Natalie. Once again, twenty seconds. Tell us why this is a great idea. All right. So, betel nuts are known to be a major cause of cancer in Taiwan. So, there's finally a positive use of this plant. Now, green is in. So, biodegradable products are in demand. I think this can be a great industry for Taiwan. That's great. I, I like、think? your idea, and、uh, you also finished it very quickly. Nicely done. <laughs> 
You know what I think is really cool about them is they look very cool. I can just imagine a beautiful table setting with all natural things. That's true. You know, they look better Taiwanese. than styrofoam. Yeah, I for mean, sure. I mean, it's better than styrofoam, and of course, you can also throw it away uh, with your, you know, your your leftovers. Um, you can recycle those. It's, uh, I guess, that would be considered duefe, right? Yeah, it's, biodegradable. Uh, biodegradable. Number four. Taiwan has about 150,000 stray dogs. Now, some people may see them as a nuisance, but from another perspective, that's a lot of dog power. Dog power, indeed. <laughs> Now, a center in southern Taiwan has come up with a unique way to give stray dogs a new lease on life. This is Niu Niu, a police dog whose job is to patrol a neighborhood in the southern city of Tainan. Niu Niu does a pretty good job, but she not only helps the police, she also enjoys playing with children. Tainan's vocational pet training center trains stray dogs like Niu Niu. Holding up two fingers like this means bark twice. Once they are trained, they can become campus dogs or god dogs, depending on their personality. Dog trainer Huang Lianfa said it takes half a month for strays to learn simple commands. The dog is learning to sit on command. It's a win-win situation for all. Training stray dogs also relieves overcrowding in animal shelters because well-trained dogs are in demand. All right, what a great idea! Now you're going to sell it to us, Leslie. Twenty seconds on the clock. Go. I love dogs, man. Dachshunds, corgis, Labradors, Schnauzers, Maltesers, <laughs> uh, Dobermans, Pitbulls. No, you seconds. name it, I love it. All right. Um, and dogs are super smart too. I've seen a YouTube video of a golden retriever discern between three different brands of soda and three different brands, and they're super smart and they're super helpful, and their noses can help you find things, and they're just so good. Let's just throw our furry friends a bone. <laughs> Toss them a bone. I love it. All right, the dogs are wonderful. I think they're great for the community, and they can be great mascots. They can、mm. be great therapists and security details. So this is an awesome idea. Number three. Now, every summer in Taiwan, we have to deal with dengue fever, which is spread by mosquitoes. You can kill them one by one with an electric racket, or maybe you can use a spray, which is more effective. But some people are turning more toward a natural answer. Taiwan is home to dozens of species of bats. You won't just find them in the wild; people raise them too. These flat boxes are actually homes for bats, and the reason why people are raising them is so they'll eat the mosquitoes. Ever since they've been here, there have been fewer mosquitoes. The Bat Association of Taiwan says that bats hunt for food at the same time that the vector mosquitoes for dengue fever come out. There's a spike in people getting bitten by Asian tiger mosquitoes between 5 and 8 p.m. And the first peak in activity for East Asian bats is between 6 to 8 p.m. They had to eat about 1,200 mosquitoes every night. That's what prompted longtime conservationist NPP lawmaker Lin Yukai to visit schools, teaching kids about the role bats play in epidemic prevention and showing them how to make bat houses. Balconies and outdoor walkways are best, and they should be about two meters above the ground. They need good ventilation and sunlight for about 40 to 50 percent of the day. In the U.S., they've used bats to help stop the spread of the Zika virus. Lin says that in Gaoshong, raising bats can reduce the need for fumigation, which will not only save money, it will also reduce the possibility that mosquitoes will become resistant. 
Okay, Andrew, you have 20 seconds to tell us why bats are a great idea. All right. I love this idea. I think it's so <laughs> wonderful. Bats are, first of all, super cute if you look at them up close. Uh, not scary at all. Uh, second thing is, is I was up late last night because I had a mosquito in my room. Oh, no. If I had a pet bat in my house <laughs> that could have eaten that mosquito for me, I would have gotten a great night's sleep. So I think it's a great idea. It's natural. You don't have to worry about chemicals. Everybody should have bats, you know. I wish I had a pet bat, too. Yeah, and That'd if you had great. a bat, you wouldn't need no Batman. No mosquitoes. <laughs> if you had a pet bat, Ryan, wouldn't you, Andrew, wouldn't you need, like, I don't know, a thousand mosquitoes to feed kept it Oh, fed? that's true. Well, you well, know, I would let him go out him and out eat, loose. and then he can come back at night and, like, eat the one, like, as a snack. <laughs> Just that one. <laughs> Midnight snack. All right, and that is a great idea for 2020. Number two. More and more workers are losing their job to automation. Now, one way to ease the situation is to offer a universal basic income, or UBI, which was most famously pushed, perhaps, by U.S. presidential candidate Andrew Yang. I spoke with the head of the Yang Gang in Taiwan, Peter Wang, and also the head of UBI Taiwan, Tyler Prohaska. Prohaska tells us why he thinks Taiwan needs UBI. In Taiwan, we focus on stagnant wages, particularly for young people in Taiwan. And we think that a lot of that is due to the fact of automation. In Asia in particular, there was a study from MIT that predicted over 51% of jobs in Asia could be displaced by automation. Really? And even Foxconn, the Taiwanese company, they want to automate 70% of their manufacturing wow. jobs away. So the trend is already happening. Taiwan has the sixth highest density of robots in the world. So we know that there are companies here that are attempting to automate their jobs away. And what does that mean for the average worker in Taiwan? In the past 20 years, wages, as we all know, have been stagnant while the GDP continues to grow. So where does that money go? It goes to the people that own the robots. So it's not just a United States issue. It is a global issue, and it's an issue here in Taiwan as well. What kind of income are you thinking about for people in Taiwan? We studied uh, 10,000 NT to 12,000 NT for adults and half that for um, young people. And if you incorporate the taxation that would be along with that program, it would be about 4% of Taiwan's GDP after you claw back from wealthier people or polluters. So how much does the conversation in the U.S. affect the conversation in Taiwan? Because it is on the table now mm -hmm. with Andrew Yang. Yeah. Do you think people in Taiwan are paying attention at all? At least from what we see, it's really revved us up. We've gotten a lot of people that come to us because they saw Andrew Yang in Taiwan media. So that connection, because he happens to be Taiwanese-American, has really helped us in our promotion. One of our biggest posts was talking about Andrew Yang and his connection with Taiwan and, and the UBI dividend. Um, so if he's successful in America, I really think it's going to be helpful to us here because Taiwanese people do look at what America's doing and they say, well, America's not doing this, so, so why should Taiwan? So mm -hmm. if, we get, if we get this as a serious discussion in the United States, I certainly think it's going to be a discussion here. All right, Natalie, 20 seconds. Sell us on UBI. Okay. This can help solve the problem of stagnant wages and brain drain. Who would want to leave Taiwan with UBI? <laughs> also, it would give people more time and space to explore their interests and to not have so much pressure in their lives. I think that would make Taiwan a more innovative and happier place. Happier place. Happier place and society. I heard right? the few words. Nicely done. You guys done. are efficient. <laughs> <laughs> is super efficient with their explanations. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think? UBI? Would you go for it? Of course. Free I mean, who would say no to uh, free seriously, money? Seriously, only the government. But I'm sure they can figure out a way to do this, right? Yeah. I think and the I hardest think problem with it. this is the feasibility of it. I think a lot of governments are mm, thinking it's a pretty sketchy idea. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if uh, anybody pushes this forward in 2020. Number one. We finally arrived to number one of our 10 great ideas for 2020. Now, what if I told you there's an exercise you can do that burns twice the calories of running? What? (laughs) (laughs) What's even better is you don't need any extra equipment, time, or money to do it. Kaohsiung Municipal Datong Hospital has turned one of its staircases into a piano keyboard. The idea comes from a similar staircase that was installed in Stockholm's subway system in 2009. Suddenly, a routine activity became an opportunity for musical expression, and 66% of the people who walked past decided to take the stairs instead of an escalator. Back in Kaohsiung, the piano staircase stretches up 11 stories, opening up the prospect of weight loss and better health and under the right pair of feet, perhaps some beautiful music, too. All right, it's an interesting idea. We've got 20 seconds on the clock, and Leslie, sell it to us. All right, so I understand exercise can be pretty excruciating to regular people of the public, and it's something you can't really do passively. You always think about it. This is kind of a passive way to do it, right? Uh, You know, you just want to play a tune on the piano? Go walk some stairs. And knowing (laughs) me, I see myself... Looking at that, I'm like, I'm going to try and play Staying Alive by the Bee Gees on these stairs. <laughs> Leslie, you need to be playing Fly to the Bumblebee. <laughs> so we should install these all over Taiwan, right? I think so. It's that fun. would be great. Mm. Actually, I have been doing this at work. I mean, walking up the stairs and it feels great. You get a little exercise in while you're at work. But I only wish we had piano steps, but it is a great idea that everyone can use, and I think it will lead us to a healthier 2020. So those are our 10 great ideas for 2020. So which one is your favorite? I liked UBI. I think that would have the greatest impact on Taiwan. It would make us a stronger and happier country. All right, Leslie. Power generating nanofabrics turn me into a battery, baby. <laughs> <laughs> For me, my favorite was definitely the bats. Ah, yeah, you I should love get those a bat. bats. That's the easiest one. Maybe I'll keep one here at the office and see if my coworkers <laughs> like it. All right, well, our next program will be a live broadcast on Election Day, so be sure. Thank you.
on today with Natalie So. Hello and welcome to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. In just over a week, on January 11th, people in Taiwan are going to elect the next president. Today, I speak with prominent political scientist and China expert from Danjiang University, Professor Lin Zhongbing, about who he thinks will win and what kind of impact China is having on the elections. But before we get to that analysis, let me tell you a bit about the three candidates. James Song is running for the People First Party, a party he created after he barely lost the presidency to former President Chen Shui-bian in the year 2000. His party is part of the Blue Camp, which is seen to lean closer to China. He is 77 years old, and this is his fourth run for president. This time, he chose former media mongol Sandra Yu as his running mate. The main opposition party, the Kuomintang, has Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu and former Premier Simon Zhang on its presidential ticket. Han has a very loyal group of followers, people call Han fans. And he surprised many by winning the Kaohsiung mayoral election in November 28. It was a surprise because Kaohsiung has been traditionally a democratic progressive party stronghold. Before he was mayor, he had been a legislator, deputy mayor, and general manager of the Taipei Agricultural Products Marketing Corporation, which manages most of the produce in Taipei. The 62-year-old Mayor Han is seen as President Tsai Ing-wen's main opponent. He is also perceived to be more China-friendly than President Tsai Ing-wen and is willing to engage China on the basis of the 1992 consensus, which is a recognition of one China each side with its own interpretation. And lastly, we have President Tsai Ing-wen, who was running with former Premier William Lai for the Democratic Progressive Party. Lai actually contested Tsai in the primary, but now they're together on the same ticket. Tsai is Taiwan's first female president. Before becoming president, she ran and lost the presidential election to Mind Zhou. She's also been the Minister of the Mainland Affairs Council, which governs China policy, and a trade negotiator for the WTO. William Lai was the popular mayor of Tainan before becoming premier. Tsai's approval ratings have gone up and down throughout her term, but she has had close relations to the U.S. But official contact with China has been suspended during her term in office. Now, who of the three is most likely to win? And how much influence does China and people's feelings towards China have on people's votes? Well, Professor Ling Zhongbing, a China expert and political scientist, gives us his thoughts. This is a difficult to accurately quantify. A lot of that is impressionistic. But I'm pretty sure, knowing the tradition of how Chinese communists have operated over the decades, they would use everything, indirectly maybe, sometimes beneath the surface, to achieve their goal. And uh, especially in the recent four decades, the use of uh, brute force has been avoided. And I think that is a very important thing to know. Therefore, I've been using the term extra military emphasis. A lot of energy has been put into other kinds of instruments to achieve what they like to see happen. 
So how do you see them working? How do you see them working? Well, well, we, I, I cannot speak authoritatively, but we, we all will refer to newspaper. Newspaper is uh, swamped by stories and things like that. Yeah, the Either, media, uh, right? The media, right, the media, internet. And, well, of course, the, the term coined by the PLA back in 03, I think, it's called Three Wars. Oh, what's that? Uh, the war on psychological warfare, media warfare, and legal warfare. But I think it is more than three. There are other, all non-bloody type of uh, instruments to be used. Eco- economic is one very distinct and distinct tool used by Beijing very successfully in recent decades. I mean, recent, at least uh, about two decades. So, and the military too, right? The fear. Military as the background. That is the characteristic of what I meant by extra military emphasis. Mm-hmm. The rapidly advancing military capabilities serve as the background, but not as the front. The front is non-military, but in combination I call the front extra military because it is not just non-military economic information and all that. It, it, there is a big stick held behind the back. So when Teddy Roosevelt said that, you can speak softly and everybody listen. Regarding the China factor, do you think it helps President Tsai or does it help Canada uh, Han? Not 100% to a certain degree because uh, I, I kept reminding people that President Tsai has always been underestimated. Every time there was a when there was challenge coming, she has been underestimated. This is almost a rule for her performance. Why do you think so that's the case? So she has five factors working for her. First of all, her youth army, she has cultivated them quietly for more than, more than two decades, I think. Mm-hmm. She has been meeting with young people, sometimes very quietly in a tucked away places. And this youth army is very powerful. And uh, she did not use them all the time. The unleashed youth army when the time comes. For instance, uh, after you know, March 18th, when Lai Qingde announced his intention to run for the presidency, the youth army was unleashed. And my young people would tell me the count of the clicks on Facebook and Line. Big gap, getting bigger and bigger. And the second factor is that, uh, well, of course, her, her, her resources as the president. And the third factor uh, is um, the factor of the United States, or that Washington would say we don't favor anybody, but we all know that what the United States has done for Taiwan in recent times, either through military or sales or whatever, helped Thai. You're listening to Taiwan Today, and I am Natalie So, that is prominent China expert and political scientist of Nanjiang University, Professor Ling Zongbing. In just a moment, he'll be telling us which candidate China has been helping to become the next president. Taiwan Today with Natalie So.
The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Listening to Taiwan today, and I am Natalie. So it is a crucial time here in Taiwan, as in just eight days, Taiwan will elect its next president. Now, with me to talk about the candidates and how China is affecting the vote is prominent political scientist and China expert of Danjiang University, Professor Lin Zhongbing. He's been analyzing what strengths President Tsai Ing-wen has in this election. He says there are five factors that make her a very strong candidate, and he outlines the China factor. Fourth factor is uh, strangely, unwittingly, I would say, Beijing, Chairman Xi's act of intimidation. They all came back to help her. The first one came out in second of January, on the second of January, when uh, Chairman Xi mentioned that phrase which always made people in Taiwan very, very unhappy. And one country, two systems. We all know that. Mm-hmm. So the survey conducted since 1992 showed that. But however, Chairman Xi mentioned that in a formal statement. And that boosted the then the support of Taiwan in the trough. And then again in March and in April, crossing of the central line by PLA fighters, then uh, the circulation of the island by warships and fighters it helped President Tsai, and eventually Hong Kong. So, how to explain this? I don't know. I don't have to find an answer. And that also helped. That, that's the fourth factor. The fifth is not her own merit. It's the long tradition of DPP. DPP always gets consolidated, unified when the election comes. And before that, they seem to fall apart. <laughs> this is in strong contrast to KMT. So five factors have been working for President Tsai. You mean the KMT falls apart? Always <laughs> while the- insight. Uh-huh. They are very capable at infighting, then fighting together against an external challenge. So, five factors. <laughs> Hong Kong is only one part of the one of them. <laughs> so, you think President Tsai has, has a very good chance of winning because oh, of these yes. factors? I said that even last December mm. uh, among friends. But finally, I published uh, an op-ed in, in our daily on the 7th of May. Even at that time, people did not agree with me. Right. Her- because at that time, her poll was not that high. She was, at that time, beneath Merke and Lai Jingde. So what do you think brought her um, approval ratings up since well, I then? I gave you the five factors. Those five factors. <laughs> do okay. I repeat them? Do no, I no, need to repeat you them? no, you don't. Well, what about Mayor <laughs> Han? I mean, do you think that he has any chance? In, in Who? Han Guoyu. Oh, I'm sorry to say, poor guy. <laughs> he has tried very hard. Uh, maybe too hard so that he 
hasn't had time to think coolly. Uh, he has uh, been, you know, <laughs> she has he has been attacked both from inside and outside. That mm-hmm. is very unfortunate. <laughs> right. Well, what would you say explains his rise to the mayorship and then seeing a drop in popularity? I think uh, before the rise, he had time to think coolly. And he, he does have his charisma. But after that, the, the strong desire, I don't want to, I'm not sure whether you call it ambition or not, sort of overcomes him or has overcome himself. Well, yeah, the party wanted him to run. He didn't even. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, the, some one, some others did not, and all that. And uh, I think he he made a very very big mistake by deciding to run. Otherwise, twenty twenty four is his. Mm. Too bad. He should have done something first as mayor. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Made some achievements. A lot of consolidated space, and, and by twenty twenty four. He is unbeatable. And do you think James Song is going to have any effect on any camp? I'm sorry to say no. No? <laughs> there you have it. Well, that is prominent political scientist and professor Ling Zongbing of Danjiang University and his perspectives on who will win the election. Well, the people of Taiwan will decide soon enough. On January 11th, they will choose the next president and the lawmakers who will make up the legislature. Do stay tuned to Radio Taiwan International. We're going to be giving you live coverage of the elections and the announcement of the votes and the result when they come out. So that will be on January 11th. You can check us out on Facebook, the Taiwan Insider page, and also on YouTube and on our website. So be sure to tune in on January 11th for live election coverage. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste. And the destination. Danshui, 1886. Danshui is a place of boardwalk entertainments and trendy eateries to the north of Taipei, where the Danshui River meets the sea. It's a historic place, with sites including a 17th century fort occupied by the Spanish, then the Dutch. But there's another fort here, less well-known, up on an out-of-the-way hilltop. It, too, is a foreign design, but the soldiers who were stationed here were not foreign. It was, in fact, a foreign invasion they hoped to head off. These were soldiers of Imperial China, and their brief time here during the 1880s and 1890s is remembered as a time when one government official tried to save Taiwan from what turned out to be inevitable. The solid masonry and brickwork here still stands, but that's about it, the rest having decayed away many years ago. 
That's why it's fortunate we've met up today with Ms. Chen, a volunteer guide here at the century-old Hobei Fort, whose job it is to fill in the holes in the fort's story. We walk in through the front gate, several meters thick, its passage like a tunnel. As your eyes adjust to the light, you'll find yourself in a broad courtyard, strewn about with pebbles, thick with dandelions and clovers, and surrounded on all sides by thick walls. A structure, some say quarters of some kind, once stood in this courtyard, but all you can see now is the rubble of the foundation. Filled with soldiers in its day, though, this place would have been impressive. The fort was designed by German Lieutenant Max E. Hecht, and built with a mix of materials from Britain, mainland China, and the mountains just across the river. This eclectic mix atop a hill in Danshui seems a bit odd, especially given how much it would have cost to build and the chilled-out personality of Danshui today. A place known for its giant ice cream cones and seaside caricatures hardly seems the kind of place you'd need something like this. But Danshui in the 1880s was a different kind of place, a port open to foreign trade, and a town where global tensions could reach. It was an anxious time for officialdom in Taiwan. You can see it in the size of the artillery guns they ordered for the turrets here. Though Ms. Chen is only able to show us pictures, few originals survive in this part of the world, you can still get the idea. And these officials had plenty of reasons to be worried. For a time, Taiwan had been seen as a sort of shield, its high mountains off the coast protecting Imperial China's heartland from foreigners. But in the 19th century, Taiwan became itself a target for foreign aggression. In 1874, rapidly modernizing Japan had sent an expeditionary force to Taiwan to punish an indigenous group for the killing of some shipwrecked sailors it claimed as subjects. The state of Taiwan's defenses and the fact that the empire didn't really control the whole island were both showing. More alarming for the Danshui area was the next attempt at a foreign landing, this time by French forces as part of a conflict over far-off Vietnam. Maps inside one of the fort's bare and echoey chambers show how close to this spot they landed in 1884. The French landing failed, but anxiety over Taiwan's defenses rose, and it was clear something had to be done. Under mounting foreign pressure, Taiwan was declared an imperial province, and its first governor, Liu Mingchuan, went into action. Taiwan, he decided, would have to strengthen itself, and modernization would be key. Taiwan's first railway line was built on his watch, and undersea cables laid down during his tenure linked Taiwan with the outside world. And then there was the military side of this self-strengthening. Critical points along the coast, points like this one, were to be fortified using the latest foreign methods. Work on the fort began in 1886, just a year after French ships lifted a blockade on Danshui's port. The results taking shape here on this hilltop were impressive for their time. You can see that its stone walls were several meters thick and coated on the outside with an expensive layer of cement. Off from the central courtyard on every side, there are arched chambers made with thick, expensive masonry, barracks of soldiers and stores for gunpowder ready to fire the fort's artillery. And then, of course, there were the artillery guns themselves. 
We've already talked about how big they were, but they were also huge improvements over traditional cannons here. And these Armstrongs and Krupps came with a brand name recognition that brought respect in the 19th century. You can reach the turrets where they once stood from the central courtyard, climbing up unsteadily through steep tunnels until you're on top of the fort, above the walls. Up on one of the now empty turrets, there was even a box that Ms. Chen says used to contain a telegraph machine. In other words, when this fort was finished in 1889, this was the final word in modernity. Best of all, the next enemy who came to Dan Shui, thinking it poorly defended, wouldn't even be able to see an attack from the fort coming. That's because it's completely hidden from outside view, tucked away behind high earthworks covered in trees. Ms. Chen points out the crumbling remains of a lookout on one side of the earthworks. She says a signaler could have climbed up here and used flags to silently help the gunners lock on to their unseen targets. This was the kind of structure the governor might proudly call the key to northern Taiwan. Maybe that's the idea he had in mind when he ordered the words key and lock to the north gate inscribed above the fort's entrance. The fort was also a fitting final project for its German engineer, who would soon be buried in Danshui's foreign cemetery. Going in, we knew that Ms. Chen was an expert at filling in holes in the fort's story. But we didn't realize that many of these holes are literal, all that's now left in these bare rooms to hint at what was once here. In the barracks, for example, there's an empty niche in the wall where Ms. Chen says an altar to the god of war would have once sat. Later, climbing back up to the turrets, we can see that the inside is indented with holes shaped like giant bullets. These holes, Ms. Chen says, would have been for keeping spare gunpowder on hand, just in case. She then invites me to try and squeeze inside one. It's just big enough. The strange entrance to one room is another example of the way you have to use clues in this fort to figure out what things were used for. The only way in or out is through two brick walls, broken up in places by arched entrances. But you can't enter or leave in a straight line. The entrances in the two brick walls don't line up. This is deliberate, Ms. Chen says. We're standing in what was once a gunpowder store, and the misalignment was meant to help contain any explosion. For a few years, soldiers and officials waited for any sign of an attack. They may even have been confident. But in Danshui, at least, the attack never came. Looking around at the fort's surroundings, though, we can see what did come instead. On one side is a lovely wooded green, looking oddly manicured for such an out-of-the-way place. On the other side is a martyr shrine, remembering those who made important contributions to the Republic of China. Ms. Chen says the wooded green to one side of us is a golf course, Taiwan's oldest, founded in 1919 and long a place where few Taiwanese could afford to come. As for the shrine on the other side, well, it's been repurposed. Originally, it was a Japanese Shinto shrine. What had happened was that Japanese forces had returned to Taiwan. A war on the Asian mainland led Imperial China to sign away Taiwan to Japanese rule. That was in 1895, just a few years after the fort was finished. 
When the landing came, it took place not here at Danshui, but in the port city of Keelung, down the road from here. And while there was Taiwanese resistance to this new arrangement, not a shot was ever fired from the fort here on this hilltop. In the end, it turned out, this fort had not been the key to the north after all. In later years, most people who saw the fort probably did so from the golf course. With the fort now a historic site, though, people can come here and rediscover a special point in Taiwan's history, a time when the island's leaders decided to embrace new technology from abroad in an effort to keep the old imperial rule intact. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about the four Asian tigers and some of the possible reasons for their success. Okay, you have one minute to do this, Andrew. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. Go. All right. The four Asian tigers are... <laughs> South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Now, they were inspired by the economic success of Japan after World War II and experienced rapid industrialization. Now, they maintained high annual growth rates of over 7% from the 1960s to the 1990s. Now, let's take a look at the difference in size and specialization. Now, Singapore and Hong Kong are smaller in population and area, and they're both global financial hubs. Taiwan and South Korea are larger, and they are world leaders in manufacturing electronics. Now, naturally, Taiwan compares itself with South Korea, as you can see from this Facebook post by the premier last weekend. He says, we want to beat South Korea. We beat them again this quarter. It's got the economic growth rates of all four of the countries. And as you can see there in Chinese, we call them little dragons, not tigers. And there are many possible reasons for their success. But the big ones are state intervention, export-oriented policies, and some people even say Confucius could play a role. Good job. You didn't hit the buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> and now you did. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot. I was so enthralled by your explain. Well, thank you. Especially, what, tell me about Confucianism. How does that play a role? Yeah, it's really interesting. This is one of the theories about why the four places, the four tigers, um, could have been so successful in their economies. And the theory is that uh, Confucianism and the ideals of Confucianism, so like hard work, uh, stability, uh, respect for authority figures, those all gel really well with industrialization. However, there's one little caveat. Confucius, of course, was born in China. And at the time when the four Asian tigers were really uh, excelling in the terms of their economy, China hadn't quite reached, it reached its peak uh, in terms of economic prowess. So I, I think it's a little reductive to say that maybe Confucius is their Confucius reason. Confucius helped them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe he played a role. He played a role, maybe. All right. And that's our Taiwan Explain for this week.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.